Okay, everyone, class is beginning. Now, everybody, please take a deep breath. Breathe in. Breathe out. Feel better? Good. Well, we take it for granted that the air we breathe is doing that good. But what if I told you that every breath you take is making it actually a little harder to concentrate, harder to learn, actually damaging your brain? It's estimated that annually kids miss 10 million school days because they can't safely breathe, because the environment where they're learning is endangering their health. On today's show, getting to the bottom of race, place, and the environment. Thanks for listening. I'm Joe Bishop. This is Our Children Can't Wait, a podcast about the systems and structures that keep our kids from flourishing. Our Children Can't Wait is also a book from Teachers College Press, available for purchase on Amazon. And if you're new to the Our Children Can't Wait podcast, please follow us on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Last episode, we talked about the linkages between school health and student learning. But what if the location of a school put the health of students at risk? What if just being at the school impacts a student's cognitive development, their behaviors, their memory, ability to learn, or even to breathe? Today, we speak with Dr. Sarah Graneski and Timothy Collins. They're doing some of the most groundbreaking research in the country linking school location to health and learning. They're mapping out where and how we're harming kids every day, pointing out what might just be the obvious, the proximity of schools to dangerous pollutants. So you can imagine how excited I was when Professors Graneski and Collins accepted my invite to write a chapter for Our Children Can't Wait. Oh, and, and fun fact for you listeners, Sarah and Tim also happen to be married. Let's start with Sarah Graneski. Sarah, tell us more about your role uh, at the university. Uh, at the University of Utah, I am a professor of sociology, and I have a shared appointment in environmental and sustainability studies. I also am the director of undergraduate studies in sociology, and along with Tim Collins, the co-author on my chapter, we co-direct the Center for Natural and Technological Hazards. So the Center for Natural and Technological Hazards. Tell, tell me more about the center. Sure. I mean, we have a space. We have a physical space, which is really wonderful. We have a multidisciplinary team of graduate students in geography and sociology and undergraduate students in geography, sociology, and environmental studies. And we collaborate on projects related to environmental hazards and specifically social disparities in the effects of hazards and the risks of hazards. So it's a social science-based center looking at sort of the social implications of hazards and disasters. Okay. Timothy Collins is a professor of geography and runs a center for natural and technological hazards at the University of Utah with Sarah. Welcome, Tim. Thank you for having me, Joe. Happy to be here. Absolutely. So Tim, tell me, how did your upbringing shape your interests in this field? If you were to reflect back on where you grew up, your family, what role did that play? That's a really good question. I mean, 
I have a PhD. So obviously I've been in the educational system for a long time. So I, I have a lot of familiarity with coming up through the education system in the United States. I've almost been entirely in public school settings. And I think my interests in these in, in this area and in these topics definitely, I mean, are just rooted in my upbringing. I actually grew up until I was 10 in uh, the San Fernando Valley in Los Angeles. And I grew up there at a time I, I was attending elementary school, early grades in the late 70s and early 80s. And I think it was around that time, and I, I don't really know the history of, of the Los Angeles School District very well. I know it's one of the largest districts in the country. But at the time, they had They'd made some efforts to try to sort of integrate schools more based on race, ethnicity, and residential location. Mm -hmm. Children would be coming in from all parts of Los Angeles. I don't even know the arrangement that was in place, but mm -hmm. it was so diverse. And I remember that being so enriching to me at the time, like uh, having kids from all different backgrounds in the same classroom as I was in at the time. Mm -hmm. I remember uh, helping teach a, a Korean child to read as part of like, you know, they, they sort of had like mentor mentee. We had multiple grades together in the classroom that I was in. Mm -hmm. And I just had friends who came from all sorts of backgrounds in school there. And unfortunately, I mean, as I understand it, I think a lot of those, those sort of efforts to integrate public schools in Los Angeles may have sort of led to a bit of an exodus in terms of wealthier, whiter students into the private mm -hmm. school uh, sort of system in the area. Mm -hmm. And so there was sort of like white flight, I guess, based on those experiences exposed to both diversity and sort of inequality fairly early on in schools. When I was 10, we moved to, to mm -hmm. North Carolina and I started, uh, I believe it was third grade. I started in North Carolina in the public school system in Durham, North Carolina. And I remember it just it being so shocking, both the difference and just sort of the corporal punishment was still being implemented in North Carolina schools. But I remember that being like my eyes being opened by that when we first moved there. I also remember just the social context being so different. I remember it was such a hard transition for me. You know, it was the South and it was a very white, that there were sort of a, a white children there. And then there were black children. They, even though they went to the same school, in some cases, I remember there being such separation between the children and their experiences and just how people interacted. I remember that was something that I just felt, honestly. I actually, when I had such a rough time in public schools there that I ended up, <laughs> for the first year, I just didn't fit in, I felt. I went to a Quaker school for a little while, my only experience ever in a private school. Hmm. And it was really interesting for me. It was a whole different experience. It was very, there was a lot of freedom in education in the Quaker school I went to. A lot of, uh, we were encouraged to pursue our curiosity a lot more than I'd ever experienced in school. Eventually though, when I was going to about junior high age, my parents wanted me to sort of reintegrate back into public schools. And I, and I went to Chapel Hill at that point, which is right near Durham. Mm -hmm. But I do remember there too, that the one thing that really stands in my mind so much as I reflect on my education was the fact that even though the school I went to, Chapel Hill High School, for example, was integrated, I think the composition of, of black students in the school sort of mirrored that in the community. There was still so much separation in the life worlds of the students from different backgrounds at that school. And that separation sort of reflected the separation that existed outside of schools. And mm -hmm. and when I reflect on my educational experiences generally, it's interesting that I, although I think education ideally can serve as this way to integrate society and to create 
a better society, I sort of found when I reflect on my educational experiences how education in some ways served to reinforce <laughs> those differences. It might be refreshing to know that before she became a university professor, Sarah didn't know what she wanted to do when she went to college. You know, I wasn't sure what I wanted to do when I went to college. Based on like my grades and test scores, they declared me as a math major. I didn't stay in math too long. I picked my own major after that, and it was biology. And I was studying biology. I was really interested in both human biology as well as ecology and environmental science. And then I just wasn't sure that this is what I wanted to do for my whole life. I was starting to think about becoming a teacher or a professor, and I wasn't sure if I wanted to do it in biology. I took a required course. I had to take an interdisciplinary course as part of my degree requirements, and I took a sociology class um, on aging, which mm. was interdisciplinary because it dealt with the social aspects as well as the physical aspects. And I loved it. I loved that class. And I thought, this is more like what I want to do, not necessarily with aging, which is not a theme I've investigated, but the way in which sociology brings together and can bring together both physical, environmental, social, cultural factors and helps us. It's like fit a little bit better how I saw the world in terms of inequalities and injustices and this sort of perspective for addressing that. So I decided to apply for graduate school in both public health and sociology. I didn't do what I advise all my students to do. I applied only to warm places because I was from where it was cold. And I applied only to three schools. I tell my students 10 to 15, right? You got to play here. So anyway, I didn't do it how I would have how I would have done it, what I know now. But nonetheless, it worked out. Um, and I ended up getting my PhD in sociology at Arizona State. And they, I actually had this NSF fellowship that was interdisciplinary. So I have a mm. minor in geography and the whole focus of the program was urban ecology. And that's how I got into environmental justice issues. Oh, interesting. Okay. So you said NSF, the National Science Foundation. So let's come back though to something you said. You wanted to get away from a cold environment and go to a warmer place. So if you were to think about the work you do now as a sociologist, looking at how the environment impacts not only communities, but the health and development of students, among other things. Like what part of your upbringing really sparked that interest? Because I'm guessing it started much earlier than graduate school. Yeah, both my parents were educators. Uh, they met actually teaching in an elementary school. My parents did. Um, my mom ended up going into preschool education. She worked at a lab school at a university. And my dad ended up getting his PhD actually when I was an older kid, um, like 13. And so he ended up getting his PhD and moving from being a, an elementary PE teacher to an education professor. So my parents were both educators. We taught, I mean, the dinnertime conversations, I'm sure, were often about education-related topics. Um, my parents had sort of a social justice perspective on the world and on education. So mm. I just sort of grew up thinking about those kinds of things, I guess. And then when I got into graduate school and I started doing my research on environmental justice issues, children are obviously a vulnerable uh, population to environmental hazards. And I just sort of got pulled into this research. And I guess I've always been interested in kids. I think I was a little more abstract before I had my own kids. Um, now that I have my own children, I definitely think, I, I, I feel like this work is so incredibly important. We need to protect them, their friends, all the kids, right? It's not just my kids, but it definitely puts a personal face on the issues. 
So it sounds like these instilled values have stayed with you, although your interests have moved to different places, but starting with your, your mom and dad were really um, kind of sparked a lot of the, the things that fuel your interest today is what I hear you saying, Sarah. Yeah, I think so. When I reflect on it, I definitely see those, those themes sort of pulling through. Yes. I remember when I was a kid, I was sort of brought up to think like the environment was something out there beyond cities. It was like Hmm. pristine nature or something like that. And I didn't really think of the environment and cities the way that I do now. My mom Hmm. actually was at UCLA and she was an ecologist. She was in a biology department studying ecology. And so I got it. We camped a lot and I I did a lot of outdoor stuff. I really had a lot of appreciation Hmm. for the environment, but I always sort of perceived it to be something that was like, you got in your car and you drove off to somewhere. Yeah, I was distant. And then as I... It was more like in graduate school where I sort of was exposed to these issues of environmental racism. Robert Bullard, sort of the father of the field of environmental Mm. justice research. And he, I remember reading some stuff early on in graduate school that really struck me about these, the role of discrimination in terms of the siting of like toxic waste facilities. And I remember just being... For whatever reasons, I issues of like fairness and justice really resonate with me mm. when I come to know that groups of people are being have been like treated unfairly for no reason whatsoever as I see it. It strikes a chord in me in a way. And, and I so I think somehow that the just my orientation toward the world uh, really resonated with this theme of environmental justice. And so I, you know, I, I, what I came to learn originally, I was studying residential environments. And that's what a lot of the research in environmental justice fo- focuses on is like where people live, not necessarily where they learn. Hmm. And it was later on that I, Sarah, a lot of her early work focused on asthma, focused on children's ex- exposure to like air pollution and their experiences mm-hmm. of like respiratory health. And she worked with like school nurses in Phoenix to sort of to interview children and in, in school environments there. And so that's when I, I guess first started thinking about schools as a place where these sorts of patterns also exist. Linking the effects of the environment to schools and more specifically children is a complex task. Making the invisible visible. Coming up after the break, what can we do to reveal the depth of our challenges, but also more importantly, to adopt policies to prevent pollutants from harming more generations of our kids? Our Children Can't Wait is the book I wrote, and I made this podcast to have a conversation with you. Maybe you're an administrator, maybe a parent, maybe a teacher, Maybe you make policy at the state level or just want to learn about this podcast or the issues we're talking about so we can keep the conversation going and hear what you think about the ideas brought up by this podcast. Email me at joe at ourchildrencantwait.com. I'd love to hear from you. Our Children Can't Wait is a production sponsored by the Center for the Transformation of Schools at UCLA and the book is published by Teachers College Press. Funding for today's show comes from the Stewart Foundation and the National Education Association. And if you haven't done this yet, please do so. Please click follow on the podcast, rate, and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. When we talk about the the chapter here, 
Why should listeners care about the relationship between the environment and education? And what is the relationship between you know, the social conditions and the school site? Sure. I don't know about all of you uh, listeners or you, Joe, but when I first learned that air pollution can affect children's academic performance, I was like, what? Are you sure? Like, how is this? Right. Mm. This is now for me, like 15, 20 years ago. But like, really? Because I know air pollution can make our lungs sick. I know it can cause asthma. But I didn't, it, it took me a little while to fully wrap my head around the fact that air pollution can actually affect how our brains function and then how we perform at school. And I think personally, it's incredibly scary because it's it's completely insidious. How do I know, looking at my beautiful children, if they should have been a little bit smarter, right? Like, I don't know, because it, it might have happened. So mm. we just, we can't see the effect of the air pollution necessarily in our own individual children or in individual children in general. But when we measure this at a population level, we find that children who live and go to school in more polluted places tend to have lower test scores, lower GPA, and there's a variety of additional metrics, uh, cognitive performance metrics that capture things like executive functioning, right? There's all mm. this evidence that pollution is not good for how our brains develop and function. And so, I mean, if you think about that and you think about how important our brains are to our own sustenance, the sustenance of our society, the future of the world, I mean, it's, it's incredibly important. So I think it's hard to understate the importance of thinking about these things, given how important our cognitive capacities are for the future. And it seems like this is a relatively new field of work, although folks are probably familiar with the Environmental Protection Agency and know that we've learned a lot about the negative effects of our history and industrial age and, and how it's impacted our, our society. But I came across your name and Tim's name, and I was grateful that you responded because I saw your names popping up on all these, all these articles. I was thinking, who is Kredeski? Who's Collins? What are so anyways, you responded. So thank you, Sarah. But is, is this a new field? And if so, why? Or is that me just not knowing the field of environmental justice? I mean, we have research on environmental justice, which looks at one example, one manifestation is distributional environmental injustice. So how pollution varies across space and then how human populations vary across space. So we might find patterns where, you know, schools that have a higher percentage, for example, of Black or African-American children have higher rates of air pollution. So the environmental justice work like that has been going on for decades. It has become increasingly focused on children and schools, mm -hmm. right? That's more of a, well, possibly more of a recent development mm -hmm. based on the literature that I'm familiar with. There's this body of environmental injustice research, distributional EJ research, which has been going on for a long time, is increasingly specializing, right, looking at new outcomes like green, access to green space and, you know, populations like children. But then on the other hand, you have within sort of like a psychology, neuroscience, medical community, you have this research about how pollution actually affects the brain. So there's a medical doctor. Uh, her name is Lillian Calderon Garcia Duenas. She's at the University of Montana. Hmm. And she and her team have conducted groundbreaking work on how pollution affects our brains. Hmm. So as a medical doctor, her research methods are so different than mine, right? I conduct surveys and work with data. She actually does autopsies hmm. on people who have passed away in Mexico City. And she's found 
you know, doing these autopsies, which I imagine is incredibly challenging, that there have been kids who have had early state had markers of early stage Alzheimer's disease in their brains um, mm. from growing up in these very, you know, very polluted environment. In one of their studies, they found in a child under one year of age, a subcortical pre-neurofibrillary tangle, which is a brain marker of Alzheimer's. So wow. she's showing with her work, which for me has been like incredibly motivating to try to figure out what's going on and how can we fix it, that, you know, the being exposed to high levels of air pollution can actually degrade our brains. So it, it sounds like a big part of your work is making the, I mean, simply put the invisible visible, because we don't often know the, the, the negative effects of, of the environment on, on our development. But it sounds like she, she's doing it in a very, very direct way, looking yes. at the impact on the brain. Yeah, but we, we, we cite her work and we use it because when we find these associations, right, as a social scientist, we find associations. For example, in one of the studies we did, we, we looked at science, math, and reading scores, and we looked at pollution exposures throughout elementary school or pollution exposures in kindergarten and then uh, academic scores throughout elementary school. It provides like evidence of why we might be seeing that kids who are exposed to greater levels of pollution have, you know, significantly slightly lower, but significantly lower math scores. So it helps us understand. I think that both types of work are really important because she's getting at these mechanisms by looking at these individual people. And then other folks that are social scientists, we can do these broad. I mean, that study I just mentioned was national level. It involved 18,000 U.S. kindergartners. So we can do these observational studies on a much larger scale. And then the research can kind of talk to each other. And Dr. Graneski, you point out in the chapter with Dr. Collins that we know the schools that are most negatively affected by environmental pollutants, by geography, at least we're starting to understand, by geography, by race, and even levels of exposure. Can you tell us more about that? There's some pretty incredible data. It's public use data, so it's available to anyone who wants to download it. And it includes data on every single public school in the United States. So I did an analysis with Tim Collins, and we looked at the close to 85,000 U.S. public schools. And because of the really cool capabilities we have at this point in time to map our data and visualize it and create variables spatially, I could basically map all of those schools and then link data on the social demographics of the schools, the type of schools, and then we can overlay those schools with air pollution surfaces, right, which are available from other sources, including the Environmental Protection Agency. So there's really amazing data that enables us to really know. I mean, of course, it depends on which pollutant we're looking at. There's many of them. But if we are looking at a specific pollutant, there's no confusion about, you know, which schools are located in areas of mm. risk. The data is publicly available mm. to answer those types of questions. So as you point out, it's not that we don't know. Mm. It's more about what are we doing to address it and why might we not be? So you're saying now we know what's happening. We're seeing these patterns play out. What kind of policies do we need passed at all levels of government, which you and, and Tim outline in this chapter? I think the reason why our chapter ended up in your book is because the solutions to these problems are based on policy solutions, right? So back in 2011, the US EPA, the US Environmental Protection Agency, actually with a big a diverse group of stakeholders developed school citing guidelines. So these were published in 2011, 
and they're designed to inform voluntary decision making. You can get them online. There's a beautiful PDF. You can read them. It's quite long. I have my students uh, go through it in one of my classes. I mean, it's great. They talk about the guidelines being designed around several key themes, right? That safe and healthy school environments are integral components of education processes, that the environmental review process for citing schools, schools should be rigorous, thorough, well-documented, that schools should be located in environments that contribute to the livability, sustainability, and the public health of neighborhoods and communities, and that the school citing process should consider the environmental health and safety of the entire community, including uh, disadvantaged and underserved populations. So the, the document is organized or oriented by those sort of four themes. Hmm. You can imagine it recommends that basically school citing teams would screen potential school sites for environmental risks through the systematic and detailed review process. They actually have these tables where they offer a series of screening perimeter distances. So like if it's a gas station, you should think about this distance. If it's a refinery, you should think about this distance, right? So Sarah, really quick, they're going back. School siting, what does that mean? When we talk about school siting guidelines, we're talking about making a decision about where to put a new school. Hmm. So a neighborhood is growing and developing. Kids are moving in. It needs a new school. How do you decide where to put the school? Hmm. So school siting guidelines are focused on deciding where to put new schools. Now, one of the issues we can, when we ask, what should we do about this? I'm going to say we need to make these school citing guidelines, federal law as opposed to mm. a guideline. But even that, it still protects or would help with situations moving forward. It doesn't really address schools that are already cited in hazardous places. Right. And the school citing guidelines too have to be paired with zoning, right? with zoning rules. Because if you cite a school in a very lovely community where there's no industrial hazards, and then there's no zoning laws to prevent an uh, industrial facility from locating oh. right next to the school 10 years later, then it was great what we did, but we didn't really prevent the problem. So there's multiple layers, I think, related to both protecting students at schools that are being built, and also then trying to protect students at schools that are already there. One way to keep kids away from environmental pollutants is through policies called school siting laws which are essentially laws that try to keep a school site a safe distance away from the stuff you wouldn't want to be exposed to. In their chapter, Sarah and Tim lay out a vision for how we can make environmental justice and educational justice one and the same at the local, state, and federal level. I would argue the work that you and Sarah are doing, Tim, is pretty groundbreaking. What I'm curious about is in this current landscape, you mentioned that the environment can feel like this distant idea, right. not in your room or in your house or around the corner. Based on your groundbreaking research, what should listeners be doing differently to enact some of the big ideas of your chapter? And frankly, it sounds like some of these values that have built over your lifetime. I think there's so much evidence out there at this point that's emerged that Exposure to air pollution, for example, exposure to like aircraft noise is another issue that I know affects learning in schools. Green space, having actually, you know, areas that are green outside, there's a lot, so much emerging evidence that shows that the environment has these effects on learning and effects on children's health beyond just the learning process. That I think what I'd probably say first is that people who are involved in any decision-making about children, and that can be teachers, school administrators, people who make decisions about school environments, as well as parents, 
first must recognize that these things can harm children, right? Like there exists things in the environment in schools and immediately around schools and in children's homes that are harmful Yeah, and that we need to take precautions based on the fact that we know that there are these connections between exposures to these harmful environmental conditions and children's health and their ability to learn to their capacity. So I think that recognition first is necessary, that there are features of the environment that can both promote children's learning, but also things that can harm them. So we need to recognize the need to take precautions. Now, more specifically, I guess, like what could be done in our chapter, we focus quite a bit on the issue of sort of school, where we decide to put schools and and what we decide to allow to happen around schools once they're built. Right. The school siting process is a really important thing. I mean, not surprisingly, I think the impetus when someone cites a school is to find land that's not extremely valuable in the market, like not very high market mm-hmm. value. to so try to build a school that's sort of mo- in a most cost-effective fashion. But that may be detrimental over the long term. I mean, economists have studied sort of the impacts of various exposures. Like I recently read a paper that focused on like, where economists had quantified the effects of of heat, extreme heat exposure mm-hmm. on children's learning, and tried to mm. tried over the life course to try to estimate what those what those costs might be economically. I'm not a big fan of everything being reduced to sort of dollars and cents, but if if we're trying to make these decisions about school siting and we're letting cost benefit criteria or cost effective, you know, cost drive these things, we probably should take into account these other impacts that are associated mm-hmm. with in placing kids in for a, a good portion of their lives in environments that may not promote their health and, and may limit their development through the life course. So yeah, where we play schools, uh, what we allow to happen around schools in terms of, uh, we focus in our chapter quite a bit. I think we bring up this example of of an elementary school in Portland where I think it's Interstate 5 goes right by it. And, you know, their plans to expand the freeway and it, it, it literally, it's right on top of the playground. They actually have to sort of move into the school ground almost a little bit in order to widen the lanes for this freeway where you have huge numbers of cars, uh, coming through every day, emitting traffic, you know, air pollutants, and just, I'm sure, tons of noise and all other sorts of things that are detrimental to children's well-being. And so I, we just have to think twice about what we allow to happen near schools. I think in the another thing that Sarah brought up a good example is that there are a lot of locally unwanted land uses that people get really excited, like that people get very alarmed about happening near children in schools. For example, if you have a liquor store or a place that Mm -hmm. sells tobacco products or any other sort of, there are other types of locally unwanted land uses, I guess, as a Lulu's is what some people refer to them as, that Mm -hmm. people will really put a lot of effort into making sure are not located near schools. And so if we thought the same way about, for example, a polluting factory or roads that where we know they're going to be high levels of air pollutants being emitted, things like that, then we should probably treat those sorts of land uses the same way. Can you imagine looking out a classroom window and seeing a major highway just a few hundred feet away? 
Sarah shares a story of this exact situation happening in Portland. So I asked her, how do we protect schools and prioritize children's safety? So how do we protect schools where we know they're every day being put in a really a dangerous situation in terms of their, their health? Right. Those are the ones I really think about a lot because I feel like the school siting solution, while it would be difficult to pass and I'm sure very hard to implement, I can see how it would work. It's a little bit trickier when we think about schools that are already located in really hazardous areas. There's issues of school relocation that people talk about. There's currently a situation in Portland where a middle school, one of the most diverse middle schools in Portland, is located right next to the I-5 freeway. And the I-5 freeway expansion is proposing to actually move on to school property. So have a freeway like right next to the window of the school. This is still ongoing. It's been since 2021. Wow. One of the discussions about this specific school is school relocation, keeping the school within the same community, but moving it. And how do we find land for that? And there's all kinds of issues with moving schools, but clearly relocating schools is possible. There's also things schools can do in terms of building and maintenance. There's all kinds of guidelines, uh, many that the US EPA has, um, the National Research Council, where we can learn, right, about how to make our schools healthier, how to improve indoor air quality. There's, you know, integrated pest management reduces the use of chemicals for pest management in schools, you know, retrofitting buses to avoid the diesel. Like there's things that you can do in terms of building and maintaining healthy schools and healthy environments. And there's, I think, a lot of really good information out there about how to do that. Mm -hmm. One of the things that I think about as an environmental justice researcher is how do we provide compensation to schools who are unduly burdened, Right. right? And so there are things we can do, right? We can make the green space nicer. The literature is mixed, but there's some evidence that green space, trees, canopy cover can even reduce the air pollution levels a little bit and can certainly just provide a more pleasant place to be. But it may also actually have academic benefits. So we can think about green space. We can think about building modifications like dual pane windows, right? Or installing air filtration systems. After COVID, the Los Angeles Unified School District installed MERV 13 air filters in all classrooms in all district schools. When I learned about this, I thought it was incredible because not only are the classrooms safer for COVID, they're also safer for air pollution, which we know is a huge issue in Los Angeles. Hmm. So this should protect kids from busy roadways, wildfires, as well as COVID. So there are examples of school districts taking action to improve air quality, even if the school itself is located in a polluted area. So as we wrap up, sir, are there other examples that that come to mind, not only in terms of prevention, but also safeguards for schools that are in a, in a location that's frankly harmful? So another example is Vermont. Vermont mm-hmm. passed the School Environmental Health Act in May of 2000. And the goal of this state level policy was to improve indoor air quality at school, to reduce exposures to hazardous materials, and to help schools earn this Envision Certificate of Achievement. So schools would enroll in this program, they would make these changes, and then they would receive a certificate of their achievements, which I assume they can then use to you know, promote their school as being healthy and safe. So the first five years, the certificate was adopted by schools who were enacting these uh, safety measures. Um, The report says that the adoption was lower than they originally targeted. But Mm. based on my internet search, the program is still persisting today, uh, 23 Mm. years later. So there are examples of, a lot of examples at the state level, right, of states saying, we can do something about this. Let's try to do it. Most uh, people in this research community will hold up California 
as sort of the best example of state-level policy to protect children from environmental health hazards, both in terms of school siting. You know, they have a mandate to locate no new school sites within 500 feet of a closest traffic freeway lane, which Mm -hmm. maybe sounds kind of close to you and to me. But I mean, when I think about that Portland school, it's going to be much less than 500 feet to the nearest freeway. So California is definitely an example of a state that has been recognized in the literature as having sort of comprehensive policy that other states could try to emulate. Thank you, Dr. Graneski. And last question for you. So as you think about all of it that, that can be done, I mean, there's a lot we need to do to keep our kids safe and to protect them. If a listener is new to this space, what, what's one thing you think they should do after listening to this podcast? Well, I think one thing that we should do, if we can do it, right? Those of us who might be felons or might be immigrants may not be permitted to do it. But if we can do it, we need to vote. Because as I think about all the different solutions to this problem, um, we can bottom up organize and we should to draw attention to these issues and make our lawmakers take notice. But I think without policy that says we can't pump that much pollution in the air or we can't put a school, you know, an arm's distance from a freeway, Mm -hmm. those kinds of things are going to keep happening. Mm -hmm. And so I think we need to think about voting both in our local elections, state elections, federal elections. And then really motivating and mobilizing candidates that res- that sort of will address these issues as much as we can. Because I just, I feel like the solutions to these issues, these issues are so big and they're so deep and they're so entrenched that it requires new law, new policy. So I really think that we have to, we have to vote if we're able to try to address some of these things. So... Do you see a theme here? All these researchers and policymakers are encouraging you to vote and to elect candidates who understand the connections between these issues. By voting, you can have a major impact on the health and environments where learning takes place. This week, our homework for you is to find out what siting laws your city and state have in place for environmental protections at schools. And if you aren't happy with those citing laws, speak up. Call your local and state representatives. This is Our Children Can't Wait. Thanks for listening. I'm Joe Bishop. Our Children Can't Wait is a podcast by the Center for the Transformation of Schools in the School of Education and Information Studies at UCLA. Support is provided by the Stewart Foundation and the National Education Association. Elizabeth Windham is the producer. Julia Windham is the associate producer. Geneva Sum is the creative director. The senior producer is Jay Woodward. Our Children Can't Wait is the companion to the book, the same name, Our Children Can't Wait, available now from Teachers College Press and Amazon. Our Children Can't Wait is produced by Windhaven Productions and Blue Jay Atlantic.